So we read the, today's text just before the choir sang, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, the last message in this series, 2020 Vision. The Hallelujah Chorus actually comes just right out of this text. Uh, the Hallelujah Chorus, of course, it was composed by George Friedrich Handel in 1741. It's part of a much larger work entitled The, the Messiah, probably one of the most performed choral pieces in all of Western music. Why should we, as followers of Jesus, be singing the Hallelujah Chorus every day? The text of the Messiah, it was written by Charles Jennings. And uh, Jennings, he wrote this to a friend. He really hoped that Handel would put his text to music because he believed that it dealt with the most excellent of subjects, that being the Messiah. He believed that his piece that he had written was actually proclaiming the mystery of God. So, in some ways, when we look at the book of Revelation, it it resembles a musical composition. It appears that there are different sections, different movements, and so there are the seven churches, and then there are the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. In this series, 2020 Vision, we've been looking at two sections, the seven seals and then the seven trumpets. Today we're looking at the seventh of seven trumpets, the end of chapter 11. If you compare this to Handel's Messiah, Handel's Messiah is divided into three parts, and the seventh scene of the second part is, can you guess, the Hallelujah Chorus. So a bit of a coincidence there. I think it's interesting, but really not filled with profound meaning. It's just that there was, were some similarities So, the Hallelujah Chorus, just this explosion of worship declaring God's ultimate victory. If we look at chapter 10, verse 7, chapter 10, verse 7, we read this, that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, so the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So this is the end of the second section. There's this explosion of worship. And we have seen worship in other moments as we've walked through the chapters 4 through 11. We're invited to enter into worship, thanksgiving and praise. And if we see what John saw, then we will see what's happening in the world around us in a new light. Just think of what's happened over the last number of months. First on the global stage, you know, there's that massive locust swarm sweeping across East Africa. There's the ongoing spread of the coronavirus, of course. There are civil protests in one quarter, one fourth of the world's countries. So people on the streets in Bolivia and Peru and Venezuela and Iran and Iraq and other places. In the last couple of months, again, one more million one more million displaced in in Syria, in particular in Idlib province. 
There are escalating tensions in the Middle East between Russia and Turkey and the U.S. and Iran and Israel and its neighbors, ongoing wars in Syria and Yemen and Ukraine, instability in the stock markets. It's been so volatile and some businesses are struggling. Trade relations are disrupted. And some of us are dealing with crises much closer to home, right in our own homes, families, workplaces. Sometimes there's marital tension, financial crises, parenting issues, Sometimes we're diagnosed with an illness that is actually quite serious. So how do we deal with what's going on on the global stage and then also what's happening in our own lives in a very personal way? How do the visions of chapters 4 through 11 actually help us see more clearly? You'll remember a number of months ago I put on a new set of glasses, this blue set. And use it as an analogy to help us understand that the book of Revelation is actually given to help us see what we normally would not see, to peer into the unseen. In chapter 4 of Revelation, John, he hears a voice, and the voice calls him and says, come up here. He's invited to enter heaven. A door is open for him in heaven. And what does he see as he goes through the door of heaven? Well, he sees one seated on the throne, the Lord God Almighty. Mighty. He's sitting. He's reigning. He's sovereign, all powerful. He's not pacing. He's not worried. He's not anxious. He's the Lord God Almighty. And He has created all things by His will and for His purposes. Nothing will escape His control. And in the right hand of the Lord God Almighty, we see in chapter 5 there's a, there's a scroll. And no one is found to open that scroll. And John, when he sees that, he weeps. But then there is one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the lamb, the lamb in the middle of the throne, who had been slain but is now standing, resurrected, reigning together with the Father, Jesus. And he has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. As we get to the end of chapter 5, there are just rounds and rounds of worship of angels, the whole redeemed people of God, all of creation falling down in worship. And of course, we are invited to join in that worship. Chapter 6. In chapter 6, the Lamb begins to open those seven seals of the scroll. When he opens the first four seals, we see four horsemen riding across the face of the earth. And those four horsemen, they they symbolize the human conquest for power and the war that ensues and the impact of those wars, famine, pestilence, and death. And as the four horsemen ride across the earth, the martyrs, with the fifth seal, the martyrs under the altar, they just cry out, God, oh, sovereign Lord, how long? If you truly are sovereign over all things, how long until you execute justice, until you avenge your people? And then the sixth seal is opened, and there's a cosmic meltdown that ensues, and at the end of the sixth seal, there's a cry, who can stand? Well, chapter 7 answers that question, who can stand? Well, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who are following Jesus those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, those who are marked by God's name, sealed by God, filled with the Spirit, that multitude that we see in the latter half of chapter 7, that multi-ethnic multitude from every language, people, uh, and nation, tribe, 
all worshiping God, praising him, thanking him, they can stand. And then the seventh seal is opened. And with the opening of the seventh seal, there is silence. Silence in heaven for half an hour. And in the silence, the prayers of God's people are arising to the throne of God. Every prayer heard, every prayer treasured. And then part two begins, chapter eight, verse six, and the seven trumpets are sounded in response to the cries of God's people. God's working justice. He is avenging his people. Judgments are executed on the land, on the sea, on drinking water, and the skies, and a third of everything is destroyed. And then we read in chapter eight, verse 13, there's an eagle in the sky, and this is the message. Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Woe, woe, woe. Woe is for those who dwell on the earth. That's code language for those who want nothing to do with God. They're opposed to God. They're opposed to God's people. They want to live apart from God. They want to live independently of him. And so with the fifth trumpet, the first woe, there's a demonic locust swarm sweeping across the earth. And then with the second woe, the sixth trumpet, a massive army that kills one-third of humankind. And then we read in chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, something interesting, the third woe is what we read, those verses that we read before the choir sang the hallelujah chorus. So the third woe is this explosion of worship, of declaring God's ultimate victory. Why would that be a woe? No plague is announced. Heaven just breaks into song. Well, the seventh trumpet is a, so, is a woe precisely for those who don't want the kingdom of God to come. It is a woe for those who want nothing to do with God. And so the declaration of verse 15, it's bad news for some. It is bad news for those who want nothing to do with God because the end has come. The kingdom of God has come. This is the end. And it's soon to come, according to verse 15. It'll come swiftly. And every rebel against God and his reign will suffer eternal condemnation. So for those who want nothing to do with God, verse 15 is bad news. Now look at the contrast. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So if we go back to the seventh seal, remember when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence. And the prayers of God's people were rising to the throne of God. Now those prayers are transformed into this mega choir, this mega oratorio announcing God's Rain, loud voices in heaven announcing the good news. Loud voices like those voices that we saw in chapter 5 and chapter 7. The heavenly choir singing out what people have been waiting for throughout all of history. The second coming of Jesus. So the declaration of verse 15, it is really good news. It couldn't be better news for those who want the kingdom of God to come. For those who want everything to do with God. This is the end. The kingdom of God has come. And for those who follow Jesus, that is the best news possible. 
The kingdom of the world dominated by lust for power, dominated by greed, marked by sin, evil, death, injustice. That has become the kingdom of our Lord, God the Father, and of his Christ, of Jesus, his Son. The kingdom of of love, of justice, of holiness, of life. The loud cry of the martyrs under the altar, how long it's been answered with, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. The eternal reign that was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is committed to this. To the establishment of his eternal reign. Now, when Jesus was on earth, the kingdom of God was present in him. Signs of the kingdom were worked through Jesus. People were healed. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. When Jesus went to the cross through his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, the power of sin, evil, and death was broken. But as followers of Jesus in this age, you know, we do experience the power of Jesus' resurrection, yes. We do taste the kingdom to come, but we don't experience it in its fullness. We continue to suffer the effects of sin, evil, and death. We yearn for the day when Jesus will return and the kingdom will be established in its fullness, but we live in what some call the already and the not yet. So this last Monday morning, about 10 a.m., I'm reading this passage, and one of my daughters calls, and she says, Dad... My husband and I were working really hard, but some things just are not coming together. And I say a few things. He says, Dad, we're reading the word. We're praying. We're thanking God for his goodness. But for some reason, things just don't come together in some really important areas. And how long do we have to wait? Where is God in all of this? An hour later, another daughter calls. And she's filled with joy. She said, Dad, I just landed a bunch of new contracts. I love my work, and on Wednesday I have this presentation at the university that I'm so excited about. And oh, that money I owe you, you don't need that money anytime soon, do you? (laughs) Yes, I want the kingdom to come now. (laughs) Of course not. I'm a father. Why would I need money? But there it is. One daughter suffering, struggling, lamenting, and another full of joy, celebrating. And that's real life. There is struggle and there is joy. And as an earthly father, with all of my limitations, I love both daughters the same. And I seek to respond to each one. As our Father in heaven responds to us when we lament and hears those cries that come from deep within us, and also our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving. With the second coming of Jesus in Revelation chapter 11, everything changes. 
Because God and his son, they have actually begun their unchallenged reign. There's no more future to wait for. The future is now. The eternal reign of God is now here. That amazing announcement in chapter 15, it's amplified in the following verses. Look at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Those 24 elders, the 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus, representing all faithful followers of Jesus throughout history, the whole redeemed people of God falling down in worship. That multitude that we saw in Revelation chapter 7, worshiping God with a loud voice, Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, of God, throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 11, they're seen falling down in worship, and we read in verse 17, the 24 elders saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So God's people are no longer crying, How long? Because the future is now and God has answered their deepest longings. We read, the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Did you notice the change in that sentence? This is an amazing moment. Normally, we read something like this, Revelation 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the the Almighty. Who is and who was and who is to come. That majestic statement of God's sovereignty over all things from beginning to end, past, present, future. In Revelation 11, verse 17, what do we see? Who is and who was. No longer is to come because God has already come. The Lord God Almighty with all of his might and strength and power has established his unchallenged, eternal, full, permanent reign. Hallelujah. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The nations, they rage throughout history. We see them raging today, exploiting the earth, serving their own interests indulging in lustful pleasure, persecuting God's people, martyring those who witness to Jesus, suppressing the church. The rage of the nations in verse 18, it's now countered by God's complete wrath on judgment day. God setting things right. God judging the dead. The language actually comes right out of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
With the second coming of Jesus, the completion of God's wrath has come. And why again would God judge? Why would he exercise his wrath? Well, precisely because God is love, (laughs) because he is just, because he is holy. And as the God who is holy and just and loving, he must exercise his wrath against all evil and all injustice. If he didn't, he would cease to be loving and just and holy. He's righting all wrongs. There's two parallel statements here. Verse 18, we read, The time for the dead to be judged. And then a little farther down, the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The judgment here, it's explained in greater detail if we turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What we see happening here on Judgment Day is that God is shattering all opposition forever, destroying Satan and his demons, all the Babylons of this world, all those who worship the beast, all those who unjustly exploit and oppress others, all those opposed to God and his people, all those who want life apart from him. The declaration of verse 18, it is bad news for those who want nothing to do with God because Judgment Day has come. It is bad news for those who want nothing to do with God. But not all are destroyed. Many are rewarded. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll remember there are seven letters sent to the seven churches, and all of those letters spell out rewards for disciples of Jesus, like these rewards. First of all, to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's a way of talking about experiencing life in its fullness. Another promise, another reward, to not be hurt by the second death. And so for those who follow Jesus, no eternal separation from God. Another reward, to never have their name blotted out of the book of life. And so secure in God forever. Another reward, to be given a new name, no more guilt, no more shame. To have the name of God written on them, one with God to sit down on the throne with Jesus, to reign with him. And so the declaration in verse 18 is really good news. When the people of God hear that judgment day has come, that is good news for those who want everything to do with God. Why? Because they are now one with God. What they have lived for. They now see Jesus as he is. They're experiencing life eternal in its fullness. What did Jesus pray to the Father? When Jesus was in the upper room in John chapter 17, he's praying for his disciples, and this is what he prays to his Father, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so on judgment day, with the second coming of Jesus Christ, 
This is really good news for those who want everything to do with God. And who are they? Well, they're described with a number of words and phrases there in verse 18. They are servants. They are slaves to God. They are prophets. They are people who proclaim the gospel. They are saints, those set apart by God, washed by the blood of the Lamb. They are those who fear God's name. They worship. They honor God. They praise Him. They stand in awe of Him, both small and great. From the least to the greatest, that's small and great. It's just an idiom for saying everyone. All those who serve God, all those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, all those who testify to Jesus, all those who fear God's name, they're all included, rewarded. They're the ones who belong to God, the ones that we read of in chapters 10 and 11. They're marked by God's name. They're sealed by God. They witness to Jesus. They live a life of repentance, and as they do that, they call others to repent. And so when we hear those words about Judgment Day, I'm sure all of us have people that come to mind, people that we love. There is still time until Jesus returns. And so the urgency around sharing the message of Jesus with those who have not yet surrendered their lives to him. But we do that with faith because we know we'll be resurrected to eternal life. In chapter 11 of Revelation, with the second coming of Jesus, God's eternal reign has begun, and God's people are with him forever. And then in verse 19, we see something fascinating. Verse 19 of chapter 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Remember back in chapter 4? Uh, John heard a voice come up here and a door in heaven was opened to him. And here at the end of chapter 11, it appears that he's permitted to go deeper. Now, God's temple in heaven is opened and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Why the Ark of the Covenant? What is John to understand? You'll remember that the Ark of the Covenant, it was kept in the most holy place, right? The Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was permitted to enter the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, representing God's people. What was kept within the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. There was a covering on the Ark. The covering on the Ark was referred to as the mercy seat, of God. When Moses went into the tent of meeting uh, and met with God, when he went into the tabernacle, it was from that mercy seat that God heard his prayers. It was the place of God meeting with Moses. It came to symbolize the throne of God on earth, and so it was from there that God heard the prayers of his people, symbolically speaking. So here at the end of chapter 11, the door of the temple is opened. Moses is, oh, sorry, John is able to see in, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. What is he to understand? The Ark of the Covenant was the key symbol, the most uh, important symbol in all of the Israelite faith. It symbolized, like nothing else, God's presence, his abiding presence with his people. It symbolized, like nothing else, God's commitment to his people, his covenant with his people. It symbolized his faithfulness to his people, his heart of mercy toward his people, his faithfulness to his word, that he would keep all of his promises. 
With the seventh seal, we saw the prayers of God's people rising from the altar of incense to the throne of God, to the mercy seat of God, treasured by God. There were prayers of worship. There were also cries of lament. How long? Maybe you have cried that out this week. Maybe those words have been on your lips. Oh, sovereign God, Lord God Almighty, how long? Ayub is uh, the leader of our Farsi ministry. In, in March of 2018, he woke up one morning in tremendous pain. The day before, he had noticed uh, hand-sized rashes breaking out all over his body. And so as he woke up that morning in March of 2018, he was just experiencing this burning, painful sensation all over his body. Went to the doctor. And his doctor sent him to a medical specialist, and the, the medical specialist diagnosed him with chronic idiopathic urticaria. I hope I said that kind of right. Anyways, he was told that there was actually no cure for his chronic hives, that he would have to take medicine to suppress the pain, to mask the pain. So he started taking a very expensive medicine called Zolaire. But after 28 days, he was no longer able to suppress the hives. The pain was unbearable. He was having a hard time sleeping, having a hard time working. He asked his wife to pray. He asked other members of the church to pray. Nine months later, December of 2018, he's driving home from work. He's just finished his night shift in Surrey. He's crossing the Portman Bridge, listening to Praise 106.5 FM, the only station we listen to. <laughs> but he's listening to Praise 106.5, and as he's doing that, he just starts to cry out to God. And this was his prayer. I quote him. Father God, you call me your son. Jesus, you've forgiven my sins. You protected me when two Middle Eastern governments were trying to kill me. I'm in pain. Why are you allowing me to suffer? Please hear me. Jesus, please come and heal me. I need you. And Ayub confesses that that was not a quiet prayer as he crossed the port man. He got home at about 5.30 a.m., fell into a deep sleep, woke up at 1 p.m., and the hives were gone, gone. And they've never come back. And so he rejoices. He is so thankful that he is a son of the Father and that he has experienced a foretaste of the kingdom, healing in that moment. Now, I ask you, is everything resolved in Ayub's life? No. He's from Iran. He prays for Iran. Is everything settled in Iran? No. There's a massive coronavirus outbreak. The government persecutes the church. It's an oppressive regime. There's all kind of an injustice. No, the kingdom has not come in its fullness. Is God at work in Iran? Without a doubt. <laughs> the church is growing. It's spreading. I think that's a picture of experiencing the kingdom now, but not experiencing it in its fullness. You see, we see, experience the kingdom in part in this life. We yearn for it, 
We do experience it, but we see in part, we love in part, we're healed in part. We experience these foretastes of the kingdom to come, and we yearn for that day when we will see him as he is. And as we wait, we do sing the hallelujah chorus. We wait for the day when the seventh trumpet will sound, and God will have heard all the cries of his people, and God will be fulfilling every word, and he will be keeping all of his promises. It is good news that Jesus is coming back for those who want everything to do with God, because God God keeps all of his promises and the loud voices of heaven that celebrate the coming of Jesus, we are called to join them in that song because when we sing that song in heaven, there will be nothing left to come. We will be experiencing Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. So how do we live as we wait? Well, we live worshiping. The book of Revelation calls us to enter into worship, to thank God for all that he is and all that he's doing, to praise him. And as we do that, we open our hearts and minds to God. We allow him to change our perspective, the way that we think about what we're experiencing right now. We allow God to fill us with his peace. That surpasses all understanding. To fill our hearts with true joy. To fill our hearts with renewed faith, renewed hope, love for God and love for those around us. We turn to those around us who are living disoriented without any sense of what's going on, just despairing. We turn to them with love, with compassion. And we share with them the reason for our hope as they observe us worshiping as they observe us smiling, filled with joy. Even though things are difficult, they ask, why are you full of hope? Tell me, why do you live with faith? What are you looking forward to? We live with hope because God's promises are sure. The words that he has kept in the past encourage us to trust him for the future. The most promised act of God was the coming of Jesus, and he came. The next most promised act of God is his second coming, the second coming of Jesus. And so because we are sure of Jesus' first coming, we look to the second coming full of faith, sure that God will fulfill his promises. And if we have that faith, that hope, it changes everything. May we live with that hope, amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we thank you again for the visions that you entrusted to John, your servant. We thank you again for preserving your word. We thank you that you are present by your spirit to help us understand your word and to live it. And Lord, I pray for each one here, each one would be filled with the song that is sung 
by those in heaven and the song that we sung today as your people on earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You, Jesus, are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you for the experience of your kingdom in the now. Thank you that we look forward to the kingdom in its fullness at your coming. Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. And as we pray that, we also see those around us who are not ready for your coming. And Lord, may you use us to share the good news of life in you with all, that you, all those that you place on our path. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your servants in this day. We thank you that you hear our every cry, our every prayer, every word of worship and thanksgiving and praise. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.